I'm Vivian, and I'll be reading from 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 10. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Vivian. Good morning, y'all. Thanks for being here uh, this morning. My name is Blake Rogers. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Christ Covenant and have the honor of being able to to share God's word with y'all this morning. Um, You know, I was given the task of of spending a lot of time in this text uh, just so that I could, you know, churn it and bring it forward to you to hopefully edify uh, the body. Uh, As Ed mentioned earlier, I do want to encourage you to to be praying for us. Uh, these are these are interesting times. Uh, this time of of COVID is oftentimes confusing, and, and I think we saw uh, some of that in, in terms of even knowing how we should operate as a church based on the announcements from the mayor and the government uh, this this past Friday. And so, be praying uh, for us. Uh, we we always want to to gather well. Uh, you should know this too. Uh, we believe that this gathering is an essential service. Uh, this is not something that we believe is uh, an, a maybe or an elective kind of thing because we believe that you and I are not just natural beings, right? We believe that we are embodied souls, uh, that God made us as being part of his image, that we have souls that need to be cared for and nurtured by the word of God. And so we do view this as an essential service However, you know, we, we also want to be good Romans 13 Christians and, and uh, honor our governing authorities as best we can, uh, also honoring passages like Ed read earlier, Philippians chapter 2. And so uh, be praying for us. It's a very complex time. It's very confusing. And just kind of an insider, like in the house note today, uh, the mayor did say, ask that we wear masks in public. So it just, I, I know it's like, not fun to wear a mask, and sometimes you got to pull one of these things where you got to like just get a breath for yourself, right? But we do ask that we wear these at all times when you're when you're here today, uh, if possible, uh, just to honor uh, one another and the government. In that, this is a confusing time. COVID has been interesting, but you know, COVID has also been somewhat clarifying, or it can be. It can be clarifying. And why is that? Well, COVID in a new way, just being in a pandemic, actually forces you to think about the prospect of death, right? And end-of-life thinking and thinking about how you're living your life through the lens of how life will end is actually a very, very clarifying thing. We uh, always have a missions conference. We didn't have one this year because of COVID. But in 2019, we had a missions conference. And, and one of the, the missionaries that we brought in each time, his name is Zane Pratt. And uh, Zane served overseas for many, many years in, in hard-to-reach, unengaged places that, that were you know, hard for he and his family to live in. His life was in danger often, etc. But he's back now serving in a strategic role with the International Mission Board. And whenever he was here in 2019... Uh, he, he told our church family this. He says, the American way and the mindset that we have adopted is that we will do anything within our power 
to pursue comfort, convenience, and security for ourselves. Our very decision-making process and decision grid rest on these three things, comfort, convenience, and security. And death, the prospect of death, the reality of death, disrupts each of those things. And with that in mind, uh, an example, right? Um, many of you have probably gone to a funeral, and one of the trends that we see today in, in funerals, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily a, a moral issue or a bad thing, but one of the things that we now see happen at funerals is that they're no longer called funerals. What are they called? Oftentimes, celebrations of life. We, in our American existence, seek to do whatever we can to push death to the fringes totally. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, in preparation for this, I you know, always like to read Spurgeon. He's a wordsmith. Many of the things that he says really are like convicting and hit home and all of these things. Uh, but one of the things that he says is this, if I do not think of death, yet death will think of me. Okay? You can try to wrap yourself in a bubble of physical eternity that will all come crashing down one day. Death is something that all men and all women are confronted with because we live in this Genesis 3 world. Spurgeon also says this, to be prepared to die is to be prepared to live. To be prepared to die is to be prepared to live. I think these things, these are important truths for us to grasp. I, th I think these are important things for us to think about in this COVID moment, but certainly all throughout the rest of our lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2 says this, It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Why? Why is it better to go into a funeral service than to a wedding feast? Well, you know, you've all been there, right? Wedding, what do you do at a wedding feast? You enjoy it. You celebrate the couple that just got married. You probably hopefully eat. You hopefully dance and just enjoy the moment together with your friends. This is the point of a wedding feast. What do you do at a funeral? Well, at a funeral, you, lay, you sit in a room with where the dead lay, right? And the funeral is the moment when we all have our attention directed towards the front, which just so happens to be a dead person. What do you do in that? What do you do in response to that? You question, what am I living for? What is life actually all about? It is better to go into the house of mourning, Ecclesiastes says, than to a wedding feast. With these things in mind, what are a man's last words worth? These, as far as we know, are Paul's last letters, right? Uh, these are the very last things that he writes that we have recorded, and he writes them to Timothy. He writes them to one who would, who would go and continue to perpetuate the gospel, to, to, the, to submit himself to the Lord using him to grow the kingdom wherever he was, as a church planner, as an elder. These are the words that Paul has for him. And, and Paul really is, the, the context that he's writing it is, is in the bottom of a prison cell. And it is with a weak hand that he's writing these things to Timothy. With his very last energies, Paul's care and concern is for the church. What Paul understood was that the greatest threat to Christianity was not necessarily the followers themselves. The, the greatest threat to Christianity, Paul knew this, was that God's word would not be appreciated, would not be undermined, or would be undermined by people not wanting to hear it. Later, he refers to these people as those who would have, like to have their ears tickled. Paul is encouraging Timothy uh, to, to continue in the word, to, to proclaim the word. And in this charge, in this passage, we, we, we're going to look at a charge that he has for Timothy. We're going to look at a testimony of one who did not finish well, which we read about there in the very end of that passage. And then we're going to read about the testimony or think about the testimony of one who did finish well. And so we've got the charge, we've got the unfaithful, and we have 
the faithful. And ultimately, my hope for all of us today is that we realize this truth, that what we love will capture our attention, will direct our steps, and ultimately, in time, will reveal who we are. That what we love will capture our attention, direct our steps, and ultimately, in time, reveal who we are. And so let's look at the charge together. So 2 Timothy in chapter 4, uh, we find the charge in verses 1 and 2, and then as well as verse 5. It reads like this in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so as we, as we examine the, the, the charge that we have here, I really want us to do this in three ways, and they're kind of on the board here. We want to look at the content of this charge. We, we really want to look at the manner of the charge. Like, what is the, the manner in which he is to do these things? And then finally, we're going to look at the context. And I think these things will be hopefully insightful for you as they were uh, for me in my studying of this thing. The charge begins quite simply. What does he say? Preach the word. What word? Well, if you were here last time I preached, which was some time ago, I actually preached the passage just ahead of this. So 2 Timothy 3.16, this is the word that he's talking about. He says this, all scripture is, God, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is the word? Preach the word. It is the theonoustos. It is the very breath of God. It is that which God breathes out. And you know from looking at the biblical narrative what happens when God speaks, when God breathes. Well, you see early in Genesis, in creation, when God says, let there be light, what happens? Light happens, right? Light is created. When he says, let there be an expanse, what, what happens? An expanse is created. When God speaks, things begin to happen things begin to change. This is the word. This is the word that Paul is encouraging Timothy to act on. The same is true for us today, right? We sit thousands of years after creation, but God is still speaking. And how is he doing that? Through the word that we have here. We don't have to wait on another word from the Lord. We have the full counsel and the revelation of God in these scriptures. And so God is still speaking. He continues to speak, and he is speaking even now. And my hope is that by the Spirit, that as God is speaking to you, as he is speaking to me, even as I preach this passage, that change will occur in your life. Because when God speaks, change happens. Preach the word. Well, there, there are three words that he in, exhorts him to, to do uh, as he is preaching the word. He says this, reprove rebuke and exhort. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. This word reprove really uh, can also be translated as convict, okay? Uh, it can be translated as convict, and I think this is something uh, important for us to catch. Did you know that conviction is one of the primary functions of the Bible in our lives, Okay. Uh, it, it is insightful. The Bible is an interesting book, right? You know, it's 66 books. It's written over thousands of years by many different authors, etc. cetera. It, it, it's good to know a lot of facts about the Bible. Why? Because it's just an interesting story. It's very interesting. But one of the primary functions of the Bible is not just that you would have a greater knowledge of the Bible, Rather, that you would seek to understand how the truthfulness of the Bible actually applies to you. One of the functions or one of the things that happens when we seek to apply the truthfulness of God's word to our fallenness is this reality called conviction. Okay, And conviction happens, again, when you understand who God is and you understand your shortcomings. And the Spirit is at work. This is what we believe. The Spirit is at work within our hearts within our lives to bring this to light. Conviction. This is what he, uh, Paul is encouraging Timothy with. He knows 
that in the ministry, there are going to be people who are going to run from convicting passages. And we all have this tendency as well, right? We all have a tendency to pick and choose parts of the Bible um, that maybe increase our knowledge and make us feel a little better about ourselves, etc. We all have a tendency to do that or a propensity to do that. Let's not make that a habit. Uh, conviction, when we experience it, is actually a good thing. Did you know that? It, it is when you experience conviction after reading or hearing the Word of God preached, proclaimed, whether that's podcasting, whether that's here, whether that's in your community group, whether that's in your personal Bible study, when you feel this conviction, you should know God is working. You should know God is moving. You, you should know that God is seeking to shape you to conform you into the image of his son. Conviction is God's grace. By the way, when you sit under the preaching of God's word, or when you listen to God's word, or when you're doing personal devotion, Bible study with God's word, you should always remember Isaiah 55, 11, which says this. So shall my word be that, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay. Whenever you hear God's word, you should always hear it in light of this reality. That God himself says, my word will have an effect. It will go and accomplish the task for which I have ordained it. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means whenever you come into a service and you're engaged and, and you're, you're seeking to understand God's word and you're seeking to understand um, where you are in, in terms of your fallenness and your shortcomings with these things, what it's doing is hopefully bringing, it's accomplishing its task in conviction. But what if you go into a service or you open your Bible as you're going through the motions in deep apathy. You know, Charles Spurgeon also said that the hardest people to minister to are not the people who come off the streets who are hungry for hearing God's word. The hardest people to minister to are the people who sit in the pews week after week after week after years after years after years after decades, and yet they go unchanged. You see, God's word accomplishes its tasks. It, it is going to soften your heart and grow your heart of flesh to be sensitive to the things of God. Or it will increase in your heart this hard-heartedness that will make you desensitized to the things of God. This is what conviction is. This is what conviction does. And know this too, conviction will always be unwelcomed whenever you detach it from God's grace, okay? Conviction will always be unwelcomed when you detach it from God's grace. Uh, The great reality of the Bible is that God portrays himself as a redeeming God. Yes, a God of holiness and righteousness, etc., but he's also a redeeming God who is in the business of bringing sinners back into fellowship and communion with him through faith. Timothy needed to be reminded of this. Why? Because Paul knows that if you don't rightly understand conviction in God's word, people will leave. People will twist it, and we'll see what that looks like here in just a moment. Uh, The second word that he encourages Paul with is rebuke, okay? Rebuke. Preach the word. Reprove. Rebuke. Rebuking is just a strong correction, okay? Rebuking is a strong correction, The third word is exhort. This is to strongly encourage, okay? To strongly encourage. The the Bible, in its multifaceted purposes, when delivered to God's people, does at least these three things, okay? It does more than this, but it does at least these three things, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. This is Timothy's task, and this is our task, okay? Recognize Timothy was a church planter, right? He was one who was a disciple of Paul. He had done a lot of work with Paul. Paul had poured a lot of life into him. Uh, As far as we know, Paul had no merit. He was not married. He did not have any children. But what happened was Paul used his energies to pour into those who would go and make a way 
for the gospel to go forward all throughout the world. He's an elder. He's a pastor. But don't get lost in that. We all preach the Bible to ourselves. We all have access to God's word in our day. We are, we are very blessed, by the way, uh, to have copies of God's word uh, accessible on our phones, uh, in, in, on our bookshelf, on our nightstand, etc. But this passage is all for us. So this is the, the content of what he's to do. And now let's look at the manner in which he is to do this. Okay, You see the manner for preaching the word, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with complete patience and teaching. With complete patience and teaching. You know, it's important, I think, to spend a little bit of time here uh, because this is the second time that Paul has addressed this idea of patience and exhortation in this book. In chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, he says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. For this purpose, right, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This idea of, of truthfulness and patience is important. Notice there's a difference in this idea of patience and passivity, right? Paul by no means is encouraging Timothy to be passive in how he addresses God's word and God's people with God's word, right? But he says, patient. And, you know, in Matthew 18, I think he's picking up on the example of Jesus here. In Matthew 18, we kind of have this process of church discipline laid out. And the process of church discipline in Matthew 18 is this, that when your brother is in sin, that you should go to him, okay? And you should know that. One of the key graces in your lives and in my life is that we would be willing to recognize when our brothers and sisters are in sin and we would go to them, okay? That can be controversial. That can feel uncomfortable. But unrepentant sin is devastating, as you'll see here in just a little bit with Demas. Unrepentant sin is devastating. And so go to them. And if they don't repent, what do you do? You take another person with you. You, you go to them with, with another person and say, brother or sister, listen, we believe that you're in sin in this way, and we want you to live a righteous life, a godly life. We want God to be honored in your actions. God's grace is sufficient for you. Confess your sin and be made whole. Be reconciled to God in this way. And then finally, it's a third step, right? Uh, take it to the church. You know, if I were writing this, I would have been like, come on. Just, you, hey, you know what? You get out of it. You do the right thing. You know what? You see what the Bible says right here? You're not doing it, okay? So I don't know what your problem is. So, like, get it together, okay? Uh, that would be my natural tendency. But you see the heart of God here. You see the heart of a God who is long-suffering with us. You see the heart of a God who is very patient with us. And his patience is meant to lead us to repentance. This also should be modeled in the life of the church family. Uh, again, this is patience, not passivity. So husband, wife, father, mother, are you one who exercises patience in your correction of others? Or are you one who has a proclivity toward violent correction? Whenever we realize uh, that we are tending towards violence, we should recognize that we are not acting in accordance with how our God deals with us. When you lash out at your children, guilty as charged, right? When you lash out at your children for not doing the right thing, you're not modeling for them the kind of love and patience and care that our Savior gives for us, okay? That's not to say you don't address it, but there's a way to lead them when, when your wife or your husband sins against you, do you lash out? Or do you respond with patient correction? 
this is something uh, that's important for Timothy uh, to grasp. When, when Christians correct one another, we do not do so as harsh, righteous judges who stand in purity. Rather, we do so, we correct as moral paupers who also know that righteousness is not something that we have achieved on our own. Don't neglect to correct, to exhort, to let the Lord use you to convict your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. They they need you, and you need them, as we'll see uh, here in just a moment. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.9 just kind of... uh, reiterates this idea, right? Even Paul himself, the, the, the Apostle Paul, wrote 13 books in the New Testament. He himself says this in, in, first, in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We are moral paupers We are not here to worship the Lord because of our own good or righteousness. We're here because God has revealed his righteousness and covered us in the righteousness of his son. And so let's look now at the context, right? So we looked at the content. We looked at the manner in which this content is to be delivered. And now let's look at the context in which which this is going to be uh, given out, right? Uh, Paul, uh, in verse 3, says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, um, this this idea of, of itching ears is kind of interesting, right? Uh, some translations say they want to have their ears tickled, right? Um, now, th- there's a small illustration that I was thinking about um, that kind of that kind of demonstrates this. You know, whenever whenever any of our children are like under correction, you know, a lot of times they just totally reject it, right? Their initial response, their knee jerk reaction to correction is to reject it, uh, oftentimes, and they kind of you know flip out, so to speak. Well, I, I did. I do this from time to time, and it's probably revealing that I'm a bad parent. And I probably need to go to counseling with Lou and and all that kind of good stuff. Lou, you got me. You got a spot for me, Lou? All right. Okay. All right. So, 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 what I'll do sometime to draw them out of their absolute insanity? What will I do? I tickle them, right? Okay. I, I, or I say something funny that's not anything to do with kind of where we're going right now, you kind of tickle them and, and it kind of draws them out and then it like allows them to kind of have a moment of reason, but then they get confronted with the truth of their discipline again and then they flip out again, right? This is, this is kind of uh, the rhythm, but this is kind of what we see here. We, we as human beings have a propensity to want to have our ears tickled, to, to feel a little good about ourselves, to take ourselves outside of the reality of conviction and be, have our ears itched and be tickled. I, I think this has less to do with, you know, them going and developing teachers and having their ears uh, itched. I, I think this has less to do with liking the kind of preacher or person that is proclaiming the word. I'm glad Jordan just stepped back in the room. It, it, it would be, I don't think, I think this has less to do with like, oh, I like how Jordan preaches. And so I'm going to be in the room when Jordan preaches I don't like how Blake preaches, so I'm going to serve in nursery when Blake preaches. You know, I don't, I don't think that's kind of, or vice versa, right? The opposite could be true as well. So, you know, I, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think Paul is, is getting at a moral issue, a moral issue that we have. And, and it, it's illustrated well, I think, by an experience that I had. Um, I had a really great friend um, in, in high school, middle school and high school. We, we, had, we had a really great youth group. At, in, at First Baptist Church of Eastman, Georgia, it's kind of a rural area. This was the county seat town, um, and this is the First Baptist Church at that county seat. But we had a really great youth pastor, and uh, we had a really great church, and we had a really great nucleus of, of, of students that were my age. Now, I didn't always have everything in common with my friends there. 
you know, I liked certain sports, and they may have liked the arts, etc. But we, because of our church, because we were people who continually kind of submitted ourselves to the teaching of God's word as young people, we kind of we developed relationships and friendships, etc. But I had one particular friend that I looked up to in some regards, right? He was a really great at scripture memory, and I was not good at scripture memory. He could play the guitar, and I cannot play the guitar. My wife will tell you, I have a guitar. I can't play anything on that guitar. He, he had some things that I thought were cool, right, were attractive. And, and, and in many ways, he was kind of a mature, stalwart Christian um, in my high school years. Well, we went through high school. We graduated. We went to college, and he got a girlfriend. And this is, he, did not, he did not have a girlfriend in high school, but he got a girlfriend. And before long, uh, he and his girlfriend, I find out through conversation with him, are having sexual relations. Well, they stayed in the relationship after we warned him not to, you know. He stayed in the relationship. They continued to have sex. Uh, sexual immorality began to grow deep roots in his heart. And you know what the fruit was? Within a year, he stepped away from the Christian faith. He became a person who knew a lot of Scripture, who no longer wanted to submit to the authority of God's Word in his life. He, want, he had itching ears. He, he wanted to accumulate something else, someone else that would fit the passions of his own heart. And he knew that the authority of God's Word and the things that he loved could not coexist together. I respect him for that. He was consistent enough to know that he could not be hypocritical and that he was going to go to church on Sunday and he was going to read God's word and pretend like it's authoritative and meanwhile sleep with his girlfriend whenever he wanted otherwise. This is the danger that we all live in. This is the danger of hating conviction. This is the danger of accumulating for yourselves teachers who suit your own passions. This is the danger of itching ears. And we all have this propensity. So this is the context. Uh, But he goes on to say in in verse uh, 4 here, they will turn away from listening to truth and will wander off into myths. Now, what are these myths? That'd be a good, that's a good Bible study question. Um, I, don't, I don't know exactly what these myths were, but I do know the context in which Paul is writing, right? Paul is writing in a prison cell in Rome. And one of the things that we certainly know about Rome and, and, and Greek culture is that they had a, a, a lot of respect for, and they centered their lives oftentimes on mythology, right? Uh, well, let's think about mythology for a moment. Uh, mythology is a way of understanding life's circumstances and scenarios that's somewhat entertaining, but in no way is rooted in actual history. Like, for instance, no one who subscribes to Greek mythology actually cares to, to figure out the historical evidence for the claim that Hercules was actually the illegitimate son of Zeus, right? They, that's not a concern of theirs. All, all they are concerned about is that this myth, this fable, this, this tall tale, this, this entertaining story will help me understand the world just a little bit better, right? And, and it can alleviate some confusion uh, for me because I can attach myself to some outside narrative that may or may not have ever happened. Well, Christianity is the opposite, or it's both and, actually. Uh, Christianity is a religion that was rooted in historical events, uh, that was in, in these events. Have you thought about these events, right? We, we believe that God sent his son who existed in eternity down to earth to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, to be raised from the dead, and that if we trust in his righteousness and recognize our sin and repent of our sins, that we can be in fellowship with God again, okay? Isn't that interesting? You, you and I believe something very, very interesting, but it's not just myth. It's not just myth. This is rooted in histor- historical documents that tell us stories of things that actually happened in history. This 
is ultimate reality. It's not a myth. And so, when we have moments, like my buddy in high school, when we have moments where we live in unrepentant sin and immorality grows its roots deep in our heart, no doubt it chokes out your faith. There's no doubt. It will not be long before you begin questioning the authority and truthfulness of Scripture if you remain in unrepentant sin. Turning Christianity into a myth is the natural progression of the unrepentant life. Okay, Turning Christianity into a myth is the natural progression of the unrepentant life. Paul knows that Timothy needs to be reminded of these important things. Um, He knows, though, that it's going to be uncomfortable, that you're going to have to confront people with truth, that they're going to want to have their ears tickled or itched, that what you say is not going to line up with the things that they actually love as they look at the world. This is um, also illustrated, I think, in a story about two years ago. uh, I live near the Silver Comet Trail, and uh, does anybody else like the Silver Comet Trail? All right, I see some people who go out to Cobb County who get on the best riding and running trail there is to be found in the metro Atlanta area. I know there's some Beltliners that are in here that are, that are hardcore as well. But the Silver Comet Trail, it's like a quarter mile, maybe a half mile from my house, but it's accessible. I run there. And, and, and two years ago, I was in a better running rhythm than I'm in now. Like right now, gosh, I was running two days ago, and it was horrible. It was hot. I, I, just in two years, like, my, my joints hurt in a way that, like, they didn't two years ago. It's, like, weird. I don't know what's happening. So, anyways, a couple years ago, I, I was going to go, I ran, right? And, and as any good husband would do, he asked his wife, hey, babe, you, you want me to take one of the kids with me? And, like, deep down, you hope she says, no, that's okay. Just, just, just go run by yourself. Enjoy some music and, like, just go run. Enjoy creation. But she didn't that day, and that was fine. And I said, okay, well, I'll take Cannon with me. And so I get the little bob stroller. Guys, now we have a double bob stroller. And I just want you to know, like, that's next level running when you've got to push, you know, 80 pounds around. But anyways, on this day, I'm running. And I've got this route that I run. I run down to what, what is Hicks Road, and I run back, okay? And I'm the kind of runner, too. Keep in mind, this is two years ago. I still do this. If I meet you on the running path, I can't help but greet you right? Y'all may be like different kinds of runners, right? Where you're just super focused and intense on like your stride and your rhythm and all of this kind of stuff as you go, and you don't acknowledge anyone around you. I judge you if if you're that way, but I'm not that way. I, I, I just can't help but greet people. I'm like, gosh, we're in this together. We're all like suffering out here together. So like, let's at least acknowledge one another. And so I'm running on my route. I'm acknowledging people. They're, they're waving, kind of saying, hey. And I get down the Hicks Road, and I start coming back. Well, these people who are running this way have started coming back probably to kind of where they live. Well, as I make that turn and I start coming back, um, in the middle of the road's a copperhead snake, okay? It's a copperhead snake right in the middle of the road. I had just ran past it, I guess, and was running back. And I stopped the stroller, stopped running. I said, hey, Cannon, look, this is a copperhead. It's a pretty dangerous snake. If you ever see this, you need to, to run the other way. You need to tell your mommy, daddy, et cetera, uh, just trying to give them some, some warnings. Well, I'm, we look at the snake. We say bye to the snake. We keep going. Well, these people are coming back that I had just seen. I'm like, hey, 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 listen. And that's weird, too, like when you get stopped by a stranger when you're running. I get it. I was like, hey, listen, there's a copperhead snake up there in the middle of the road, so just be careful. And I do this like three or four times, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 I saw that. I was like, what the heck? Like, you, you mean to tell me that the reality was that there was a snake in the middle of the road that could have bitten me or my son, and you just let me run unaware? Because why? You didn't want to make me uncomfortable, right? You didn't want me to break my stride. You didn't want to make me uncomfortable to warn me about the reality of this snake. And I think this is the tendency that we all have with God's word. We don't want to be uncomfortable, and certainly we don't want to make those around us uncomfortable, and you don't want to hear uncomfortable preaching and challenging teaching. Um, this, is the, this is human nature. This is my nature. This is your nature. And Paul is instructing Timothy uh, against that. But I have a slight suspicion 
that this is the very thing that happened to the man that we read about, that Vivian read for us, and that we all read about in verse 10. So we have our first point, our second point here is the unfaithful. So we had the charge and now the unfaithful. Verse 10 reads this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas. Demas, you may not know much about Demas, but maybe you do. If you've read much about your New Testament, and if you've read the book of Colossians, and if you've read Philemon, uh, you know that, that Demas is one who, at one point in his journey, was a fellow laborer with Paul. Okay, He, he was one who was with Paul. Uh, he did work with Paul, gospel work. He suffered with Paul. But what happened to Demas? Well, we don't fully know. Uh, all we know is at some point, because of these last words of Paul, that Demas has deserted him. That Demas, out of his maybe fear of suffering, maybe because he feared being executed with Paul, maybe he just wanted to flee to safety, maybe he succumbed to immorality in an unrepentant way, or maybe he simply just caved into the, reten- the relentless temptation of being comfortable. Or, or, or maybe he just gave into this idea of a prosperous life in a great cosmopolitan town, cosmopolitan town like Thessalonica. You know, like I mentioned, I grew up in a rural area in uh, Dodge County, Georgia. Nathan knows where Dodge County is. But, you know, there's not a lot happening in Dodge County. But one of the interesting things about Georgia, and we see this right, right now in the COVID response situation with our governing officials, is that there's really like Georgia and then there's Atlanta, right? There's Georgia and then there's Atlanta. And we always thought this way. We only went to Atlanta to go to like a field trip to the Coca-Cola factory or to the Atlanta Braves, Fulton County Stadium. It was awesome, right? And then Turner Field. It was awesome. That's the only reason that we ever went to Atlanta. And so when we would hear of like, oh, he or she moved to Atlanta, we'd be like, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what's going to become of them. They're in that cosmopolitan city of Atlanta. They're probably going to be in the clubs. They're probably going to reject God totally because they've gone to Atlanta. It's it's like saying he's gone to Vegas, you know, today. Like when you... You know, you, you moved to Vegas. Gosh, you went right to the cesspool of the world or something. This is kind of the idea with Thessalonica. This is cosmopolitan town. It offered worldly riches. Whatever the case may be, Paul certainly understood that Demas had rejected the faith and had gone to embrace the world. He used to long for the appearing of Christ, and now he's longing for the things of the world. This is a warning to us. This is a warning to us. This is not a passage that we look at, and we look at Demas, and we say, gosh, what a punk. He was with us, and now he's gone. No, no, no. This is a warning for you. By God's Spirit, this example of a brother who left the faith so that you may persevere, that you may hold on, that you may look and long for God's appearing. At some level, and at many levels, we have a tendency to love the things of the world. Here James 3, 2 says this, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Uh, This is us. We are people who have this desire for worldliness in our fallen hearts. And we must be on guard against it, measured against the very theonoustos, the very word of God that we preach to ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Demas had a good four or five years, right? If you would have asked Demas, Demas, do you, do you feel like, you know, in the future you're going to just totally abandon everything that you've given your life to in this moment? He would have said, absolutely not. But the heart is deceitful above all things. We must press on. We must be on guard. We must submit ourselves to God's word and his spirit to actually reveal our hearts to us. 
Now, with this in mind, there, there are seven questions that I want to present to you that, that hopefully will peel the layer that, you know, we're very like, our hearts are onions, right? There are many layers to our hearts, but these questions hopefully will confront you with um, whether or not you're longing for Christ or maybe whether or not you're looking and longing for the world and worldly things a little too much. These are some self-assessment questions that I'm going to read briefly uh, here for you. Uh, first, we may be longing for the world when the world or any object in it engrosses our thoughts to such a degree that it excludes serious reflection on the things of God. Second, when most of our conversations center on the things of the world. These, these are indicators that, wow, maybe I am longing for the world too much. Third, if we're unwilling to part with the things of the world when need be, or unwilling to give the things of the world up for God's purposes. Fourth, discontentment with our portion of the world's goods proclaims an inordinate desire for it. Did you catch that? If you spend your life disgruntled, dissatisfied with what and how God is providing for you, you may be trusting in the world instead of God, okay? If we're disgruntled about these things. Fifth, when we pursue the things of the world with greater zeal or enjoy the world more than serving God and enjoying his favor, we may be longing and loving the world. Six, if we pride ourselves on earthly distinctions, we're loving the world. This is something that we have a great danger of in this city, right? This is a city, as, all, as many cities have historically always been, it's the place of human ascent. It's the place where humans go to prove themselves, to see if you can, can make it in the world. And you know what? If you make it, you get, a, you get a raise, and then you get a promotion, and then you get all of these things. We're all susceptible to this in Atlanta. Finally, when we seek to acquire or retain the world's objects in a wrong manner by, or by unwarranted means, we are loving the world. These are just a few considerations for you to, all, to be asking yourself. There are more. There's more in this text that you need to engage with. But what we need is accountability of the Word of God and the accountability of the family of God around us. If you are not in the regular rhythm of asking yourselves important questions of your heart and not regularly reading God's Word, you at best are coasting in your Christian walk in your Christian race, and at worst, you're on your way to hardening your heart to the very truth of Christianity. As is true for Demas, it is true for us. Truth is always revealed in time. Demas began well, but he finished poorly. But there's a contrast to Demas in our text, and it's Paul himself. And the problem with Demas, as far as Paul was concerned, is that he longed and loved the thing he longed for and loved the things of the world. And then we're going to see Paul reflecting on God's grace in his life. Okay, you can read Paul's theology of of, of works and and right and, and righteous acts all throughout his scriptures, right, or all throughout his writings. Uh, he in no way is seeking to proclaim that he himself has achieved it. He, if you read the New Testament, if you read his letters, it's clear that it is the Spirit working within him to bring forward good fruit, to bring forward good works, so on and so forth. But as he is reflecting on the Spirit's work in his life, by God's grace, he models something differently. But before we look at actually what he said, I want us to look at a couple of paradigms that I think are evident in Paul's life here. First of all, he's thinking about eternity. Now, one of the things that I enjoy most about being on staff at Christ Covenant are our teaching meetings, okay? Whenever someone is chosen, that person is usually Jason Dees, to preach God's word for God's people. Um, he either develops a, a task, a text that he's going to proclaim and preach, but what we do ahead of the sermon is this. We get our elders together, we get our staff together to speak into the sermon. So what you hear today is the fruit of many men, not just one man, which is good for us 
I think, as Christians. And so uh, what, what Paul is doing here is he is, and, and this is what Ed Butler pointed out in our teaching meeting, what he's doing is, is focusing his very last energies on making sure to invest in things that matter, not in just two years, two, two days, two years, 20 years, 200 years, 2,000 years, but 20 million years, right? The greatest threat Paul knew to Christianity is that the gospel would be contorted to be something that it's not. That, that God would, be, would get twisted and suited and, and shaped into the, the fashion of people's passions. He, he knows that this is the greatest thing. But I think like because he's living in light of his temporal nature as a human being, he's able to invest in something that is eternally significant. James 4, 14 reminds us of this. It says, he says this, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Uh, the theology of your lifespan is another very interesting study in the scriptures, but many of us live as if we're going to live forever. And we spend our time on temporal things that ultimately only matter maybe to you and your comforts and your security and your convenience. But let's give ourselves to the things that actually matter. I think that's one of the paradigms that we see in, in Paul's faithful life of living. The other paradigm that we see is his discipleship and mentorship of Timothy. I'm going to suffice it to say this, that intergenerational relationships are very important within the church, and you need them. We, we all need a Paul. We all need a Timothy, okay? And so uh, you, you should be being poured into, and you should be giving to someone else. And, and others have said you also need a Barnabas, somebody who's just going to encourage you along the way, somebody you can just enjoy life and fellowship with to be encouraged by. But we all need a Paul and a Timothy in our lives. This is one of the primary means of God's grace uh, as the word is, is filled in those relationships. But this is what Paul says. So there's the two paradigms. This is what Paul says. He says this in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. One of the questions that comes to mind as I read this was, what is the fight? right? Uh, what is the race? You know, on my journeys back from the Silver Comet Trail, there's the most ridiculous hill that you have to run up, okay? And it hits you, right? As you're already, like, tired, you're longing for home, you want to you wanna be home, you're pushing a do- double bob stroller, but you got this daggone hill that you got to go up, okay? And, and this is the kind of thing that I feel like Paul is getting at here, something that is strenuous, Something that you have to strive for. Well, I thought Christianity was simple. Faith and repentance. What is this striving? Well, I think Paul understands, as we need to as well, that if you've been a Christian long enough to go through suffering, you know that believing is straining. Okay? In this fallen world that we live in, the brokenness is heavy. The suffering is very difficult to go through. And Paul, for, for sure, was a man who endured much of this, right? All for the sake of the gospel. He endured much suffering. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that believing is straining. We begin to ask questions like this. Does God love me? With all of these difficulties that seem to come at me, does God actually love me? Does God love me? With all of the sin that I continually find myself returning to as a dog to his own vomit, does God, how could God love me? Does God really actually love me in spite of these realities? And the answer is yes. And it is through the suffering It is through the pain that we, along with Paul, must continue to fight off unbelief. Unbelief is so easy to creep in to our lives whenever we look at the things of the world for our hope. But whenever we long for Christ's appearing, when we long for him, when we look to him, we can fight off unbelief no matter what is going on in the world 
around us. This is exactly why Paul addresses these things with Timothy. He knows that Timothy is going to be susceptible to discouragement. He knows that, I guess not many of you have been pastors, but you know one of the most discouraging things as a pastor? And we saw this a lot in the church that we came from uh, in Louisville, where I served as a student pastor. People leaving your church for unbiblical reasons. Listen, if you're going to leave a church, leave it the right way, okay? Um, leave it in communication with your, your elders. If you have issues, make those known uh, because we don't want to do anything to, to confuse the gospel. One of the most painful things in the world is for people to leave a church in an un, for unbiblical reasons. And Paul knows that Timothy is going to experience that that people are going to want to find another teacher who's just going to make them feel better about their own passions. And so he's encouraging him. Uh, several of our staff members are, have read or are reading this new book um, by Gavin Ortland called um, Gentle and Lowly. And it really centers on Matthew 11, verses 29 and 30. It says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is true and hard to believe in the middle of a fallen and broken world. Fight for your faith. Do as Paul does, as he says later, henceforth. There is laid up for me, looking ahead, right? Looking, looking to what is to come, looking outside of this fallen world for hope, he says, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. So as we get ready to close here, I think that there are likely two categories of people in the room. There's a first category of person who, like my friend from high school, you're in the middle of sin. Okay? You're in unrepentant sin. And you need, you need to see the goodness of God and the truthfulness of the ultimate reality that God is a holy God who is pursuing you so that he may be honored in your life, not dishonored in your life. That his image could go forward in your life and be, be on display for others instead of you giving yourselves to the things of the world. You may be that person. Uh, one mentor once told me, he said, listen, there are some sins that you fight all sin must be fought, but then there's, there's some sins that you flee, right? You, you know that for you. There, there, I was talking to Jason on Thursday, and, and he's out in the wilderness, out in, you know, Montana right now, I think, on vacation with his family, and, and he was on a trail, and he actually had some kind hikers coming his way as he was walking up this hill with, with his children. They said, hey, listen, Jason, I don't think they knew his name, but they said, hey, listen, you, you probably want to turn around and go the other way. There's, there's bears up here and I would not have my children around, okay? Uh, you know what don't go together? A wild bear and a young child, right? Th th those things don't go together, and so what did he do? He fled. Some of you have sin in your life that you know you have no strength over, okay? You need to flee it. You need to do everything you can within your power to build structures and accountability so that you can get the heck out of there, right? You, some of you are there, we need to make great efforts lest we fall like Demas. Secondly, another, another group in here today it could be the person who says, you know what, I, maybe I am looking to the world for my hope and purpose in life. Uh, maybe there's not a besetting sin that uh, brings you down, <laughs> that mauls you as a bear, but, but maybe you are seeing within your heart a tendency to look to the things of the world. And in doing that, maybe you're questioning the things of Christianity. Like, is this actually true or is this a myth? Wherever you are today, my hope for me, for you, for everybody watching online is, is, is that we would find ourselves able to say exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 13, and it's this. I thank him who has, given, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though, here it is, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent, an insolent opponent. 
but I received mercy. You know, we actually don't know the last word on Demas. I hope Demas repented, you know. I hope that in Paul's perspective, he was writing in as much as he knew. And I hope that one day Demas actually came to trust and repent and know the goodness of God and his word. I hope that's true for him, and I hope that's true for us. May we be people who our only word, our last word, would be, but we received mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Um, God, I, I pray that, that your word would do its work, that it would bring conviction where conviction is needed, where it would bring hope where hope is needed, that it would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. And God, we trust you with that. God, I pray for each person here that uh, they would not feel heavy burdened necessarily by this sermon, or unduly so, but rather that they would see you as a good God who gives grace to all who come to him, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.